the news from Africa is often bleak, but that's only part of the story. It has wonderful opportunities, spectacular scenery, spectacular wildlife, a huge variety of enjoyment in traveling there. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Africa scholar Martin Meredith provides us a backgrounder on how a colonial legacy contributes to the challenges African nations are facing today. Francis Tapon is in the middle of visiting every country in Africa, and in many places, he's been one of the few Westerners he or the locals have seen. It's just full of smiles and just full of joy. And an international melting pot is a fixture on Sasha Martin's dinner table. She'll tell us how the foods from every country on Earth can instill an international curiosity in your family. The most simple thing you can do, which I recommend everybody to do, is to hang a world map in your dining room or wherever you eat your meals. From Africa to your kitchen spice rack, it's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We're following up on some compelling resolutions made by a couple of Travel with Rick Steves listeners in the hour ahead. In a moment, you'll hear how their interest in people from faraway places has actually changed their lives. One takes us far from the comforts of home on a Trans-Africa hike, while the other brings the world into your home through the comfort foods of every nation on Earth. We'll also learn how the colonial legacy of Africa continues to complicate political and economic realities for everyday Africans today. Let's start with a call-out to Francis Tapon. He's in the middle of a four-year trek into each of Africa's 54 countries. He's been filming his African travels for a documentary he's calling The Unseen Africa. After starting in Morocco, he's worked his way through West Africa to the Great Lakes region near the center of the continent. Right now, he's on a phone in the city of Mwanza in Tanzania, where he's waiting to board a freighter to cross Lake Victoria to Uganda. Francis, good to talk to you again. Thank you so much, Rick. It's great to be back. Yes, now you have this inspirational adventure going on. Your uh, website, Africa 54, is a reminder there's 54 nations in Africa and you intend to visit all of them. You're halfway through. Give us a quick overview of your uh, journey plan. So basically, I entered into Africa in Morocco, so in the northwest corner, and I've been traveling over 22 months in 22 different countries, so basically one month per country. And I plan to keep up that pace for all 54 countries, which will make it a four-year journey. And I'm basically going all the way down to South Africa, and then I'll come up on the east side of the African continent, and finally ending across North Africa in 2017. Francis, I love the thought that you're staying one month in each country. Tell me the value of staying one month in a country. Do you find there's vivid differences from country to country? Yeah, I mean, it's all the argument whenever a traveler has to decide depth versus breadth. Mm -hmm. And so one month is not enough sometimes, but on the other hand, it's better than just spending a week. And the key thing is, how do you spend that month? And some people, you know, you can just spend it in one place the whole time, the other time you can spend it exploring. I mean, the bottom line is, I'm trying to capture a little bit of everything. So I try to visit basically three areas in every country. I want to see some wilderness, I want to see, let's say, small towns, and I want to see the big towns. So by going for at least those three different regions, at least I can get a good taste of the country. And of course, the more regions I can see, the better. From a tourism point of view, for somebody who is a little bit leery about diving into Africa as a tourist, are there natural wonders that take your breath away? And uh, is it easy to get into the villages? And, and are the big cities just horrific, poverty-stricken megapolises, or do they have some charm? Um, the big cities in general in Africa, unfortunately, don't have a whole lot of charm, especially for those of people who are used to Europe. They just really can't compete against that. But I would say the charm of Africa is not so much the big cities, but it's the small villages and, of course, the wilderness. That's where you really get the most bang for your buck, and that's where you can really soar to places. And especially if you go to places that there are off the beaten track, mm -hmm. and then you can really find people who, who will be so enamored and enchanted to see you because they are not used to receiving visitors. To give you an idea, I was in West Africa for about 18 months, and I saw basically just one group of French tourists during the entire 18 months of travel. 18 months of travel and just one tourist group, that was it. I saw a couple of Peace Corps volunteers, but for the most part, I didn't see anybody from North America or Europe. Do you find comfortable hotels where you can have a, a little privacy and let, your, uh, let yourself calm down and, and have a, some peace and quiet, a little refuge? Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, hotels are everywhere in, in, throughout Africa. They're pretty easy to find. The standards 
not always up to the standards that you're used to, let's say, in Europe. They may not have hot water, but on the other hand, when it's boiling hot outside, you really, <laughs> don't really need hot water. Now, you were in West Africa. Of course, that's uh, in the news with the Ebola epidemic. Were you actually in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia? Yes, I was in those countries in 2013, so it was right before the Ebola epidemic took off. I see. Now, are you uh, exercising any special precautions now to, to keep yourself healthy, or would you say that if you're thinking of Africa, you should not really concern yourself with Ebola as long as you're away from those countries? That's a really good point. I mean, we forget how big Africa is. It's three times the size of the United States, even when you include Alaska. And those three countries represent the size of California, so Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia. So imagine if we had three Californias, three New Yorks, three Texases, three Alaskas. So three times bigger in just one of those states, California, one of the Californias has Ebola. Right. So you're, you're comfortable in your travels now. Hey, Francis, you're on Lake Victoria right now, preparing to catch a boat. Describe the scene right now where you are. Well, I mean, the temperature is perfect. I mean, here in Tanzania, I'm just amazed by it, especially when you're at the high-altitude areas. It's just totally pleasant. It's like Hawaii. It's just perfect temperature all the time. And uh, the lake is enormous. I mean, it's basically a sea. It's the second biggest lake in the world, unless you count the Caspian Sea. Um, only Lake Baikal in Russia is bigger. And so I'm just looking forward to this journey. But it's very peaceful. It's a nice town, and it's mm. great. That's great. Now, you started out in Morocco, and I know you originally intended to start out in Egypt. Uh, what made you change your plans? My flight got canceled. Ah, so you were that flexible. <laughs> exactly. Just fly into Morocco and spend a month there instead of a month in Egypt. I would imagine you don't have reservations. Are, are, do you know where you're going to be in three weeks as far as hotels go? No, I have no idea. I, n- I never make reservations or any plans ahead of time. I usually arrive in towns and cities. I don't even know where I'm going to be uh, that night. So I'm very much spontaneous as a planner. What do you do for information, Francis? Just, I mean, do you have the Lonely Planet guidebook, or are there reliable guidebooks for these countries? I do have the Lonely Planet guidebook. Um, I depend a lot also on just talking with people, locals along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, The key thing I do is I also have a camping equipment with me all the time, and so that allows me to just camp anywhere I want. I'm driving along. If the sun is setting, I just pull aside the road, find a little field in the village, and just, like, camp there. Ah. Um, so I do that about you know, almost half the time. So you can camp wild, as they would say in Europe, and uh, feel safe about that? That's right, yeah. I mean, the density here in Africa is about 30 people per square kilometer, and as a result, there's a lot of open space. You know, I was watching your one of your video clips. Uh, you've got this amazing uh, blog at africa54.com, and it was fun to see you stuck in the sand. Talk about the challenges of driving around Africa, going to 54 countries in 54 months. Yeah, I mean, the road conditions for a lot of places are atrocious. I mean, just amazing. Uh, either they're mud fest if you're there in the rainy season or they, if you're going across the Sahara or any of kind of these deserty places, it can be very challenging. Navigation can be hard as well, especially if you're going to remote areas. It's happened to me twice where I've gotten stuck in the sand. Once I had a healthy car, once my car broke down. The second time I had to be towed about 200 miles. So, so deep in the Sahara. You just call your uh, AAA m- a membership number and they come and get you? <laughs> no, I have this thing called the Enrich device and allows me to uh, press a button and it sends an SOS to U.S. Embassy contacts the country I'm in and they, they contact the local authorities to help me out. That's great. We're talking with Francis Tapon. He posts uh, videos and updates from his all-Africa voyage on his website, africa54.com. Francis is on the phone with us right now from Tanzania. And he's preparing to cross the second biggest lake in the world, Lake Victoria, heading over to Uganda. Hey, Francis, I heard you got deported in Chad. What happened there? Yeah, basically, I was traveling with my French passport, and the passport itself had expired by the time I entered into Chad. The visa that I had for Chad had not. Uh, When I entered into Chad, the official didn't notice that fact and let me in. But then I went to another town, and they noticed the problem there. And then they decided, well, they're going to deport me instead of sending me to the capital. Ah, so you have to sort of dance around these problems as they come up. I, I would imagine there's a little bit of a red tape issue when you go from country to country. How Generally, you've crossed a couple of dozen borders. Is it pretty straightforward, or is it always a little bit nervous? It's always a bit nervous because sometimes you're at the mercy of the border guards and, and, and how the, the mood of the day, if they feel like finding fault in things that are really not that problem or asking you for documentation that's not that required, uh, but in general, I would say the border crossings are pretty uh, benign, 
and generally speaking, even when my papers are not in order, they're pretty forgiving. Forgiving meaning you slip them a little money? Sometimes it means that, sometimes you don't. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. for example, when I entered into Liberia, I had no money left because all the ATM machines in Sierra Leone didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, I came in there, I said, listen, I have absolutely no money. And they said, well, you have to pay this fee, you have to pay this fee. I was like, I have no money, I have zero. <laughs> and so they eventually, after like you know a couple of hours, they just let me into the country without paying any wow. of their standard fee. You, you mentioned you see almost no tourists. Uh, you're a white American traveling all over Africa. How do people react when you come into town, in some town that's got literally no tourism? What's the welcome you receive? It's just full of smiles and just full of joy, and people are just... I mean, the only thing is, you know, kids are, have two reactions. It's funny, the little children, they either think I'm like some Martian, and so they either are thrilled, and they're like, they run up and they want to touch you and then talk to you, but others actually run away from you. They're actually scared to death. They've never seen a white person, and they think there's something might be wrong with you. And so they run away, and they like go to their mothers and crying. <laughs> it's hilarious. Like you've got some sort of a skin disease. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness, what an experience. But and also, if you open your mouth, then they start hearing you speak a language that they've never heard before. So, yeah. you know, that's always kind of uh, head-turning as well. Do you have to be careful of just cultural faux pas? I mean, is there something you could do that could actually offend people or, or get you into trouble? Or do they cut you some slack because you're genuinely curious and you've got a nice smile? Definitely, they cut you slack. That's the beautiful thing. Africans are extremely forgiving about all sorts of things, especially if you're a foreigner. Um, but there's little things, like, for example, in the Muslim countries, uh, you're usually not supposed to give your hand to a woman. So when you don't want to go up and shake her hand if she's a married woman. Right. Um, so you just kind of, like, just say hello. Um, you just wave or something like that. But you don't actually give your hand and touch the married woman's hand. So exciting what you're doing, and it's so great you're sharing it on your website. Uh, anybody who's interested in following Francis Tapon, check his website out. It's simply africa54.com. Africa, the number 54 and then .com. Francis, where are you heading from here? Well, I'm going to Uganda next, and then from there I'm going to be climbing up uh, Mount Stanley, which is the third tallest mountain of Africa. It's going to be amazing. It's about 16,700 feet, or about 5,100 meters. And then for the rest of your two years of traveling, uh, generally, what's the plan? Um, basically heading to southern Africa in 2015, eastern Africa, or East Africa in 2016, and North Africa 2017. All right. Francis Tapon, what an adventure. Thanks again for sharing it at africa54.com. And let's check in periodically. I can hardly wait to hear more about your adventures as you visit all 54 nations in Africa. Thank you, Rick. When you wake up in the morning until evening and you're still alive, count your blessings and be thankful, sister and brother said, Hallelujah. Francis Tapon updates his Trans-Africa journey at africa54.com. In just a bit, we'll hear how a listener in Tulsa has turned her kitchen into sort of a melting pot of every nation. And next, we'll get an overview of how African history continues to shape life all across the continent. We're at 877-333-RIC. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Kaji Meitame Oladapash, Aingwa Masailan, Naisafiri Oryx Steve. That's in my Maasai language. My name is Meitame Oladapash. I'm from Maasailan in Kenya, and I travel with Rick Steve. Kaji Meitame Oladapash, Naingwa Masailan, Naisafiri Oryx Steve. Gold 
oil, land, diamonds. Think of the riches in Africa, yet it remains one of the poorest or if not the poorest region in the entire world. Africa thus remains a continent of huge potential but limited prospects. That's what Martin Meredith writes in his latest book, The Fortunes of Africa, and Martin is with us today. He's a scholar from Oxford in England. He's written many books on Africa, and he's spent a lifetime studying Africa. And today he shares his insights into Africa. His book, The Fortunes of Africa, a 5,000-year history of wealth, greed, and endeavor. Martin, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. When we think about Africa, first of all, a lot of Americans just think Africa is just one entity. But obviously, it's many different entities. Give us the lay of the land, politically, culturally, economically, Africa today. It's a very diverse continent. One example is that there are 1,500 languages which are spoken there. It ranges from the kind of desert uh, states to deep tropical countries to savannas. And, and so there is a wide range of cultures, wide range of landscapes. And its, its history has sort of bound it together, partly because of the kind of colonial rule which Europeans forced on them on Africa. You could almost say that a colonial heritage is something that Africa has in common. And as your book points out, for 5,000 years, Europeans have looked at it without uh, compassion, but with, with greed. And it seems to me in so much of the world, borders were drawn according to the colonial interests of uh, European powers. And in Africa, that's probably part of the uh, design. What, what about the borders that survived from colonial times? And how does that relate to the challenges that Africa has today? Well, European powers constructed almost all the African states that exist today, and the borders that they imposed on those states are almost entirely artificial. Nearly half of the borders of African states are actually kind of straight lines on the map, lines of latitude or longitude. It occurs uh, to me, when you see a straight line on the map, you should be suspect. Yes. Oh, indeed. I mean, these were drawn up by politicians in Europe in the late 19th century, whose knowledge of the interior of Africa was abysmal. Um, they Literally, on European maps at the time, much of the interior of Africa was known as terra incognita. So they're wheeling and dealing in palaces and offices in Europe, getting out a map and drawing longitude and latitude lines and saying, Belgium, you get that? France, you get that? Germany, why don't you take that? I ignoring the ethnic makeup of those regions. Oh, yeah. they took into account nothing that was really kind of going on in the ground. So what is the consequence of that when you draw a line 100 years ago that ignores ethnic regions? There are two consequences. Before the European powers came, there were about 10,000 African polities or societies. And European powers amalgamated them into 40 different countries. 10,000, and then 10, it's down to before. 40. Whoa, and today it still has 1,500 languages. Yes. The effect of that was twofold. Some countries or some societies were uh, split up. The Congo people, for example, were split up between the French Congo, the Belgian Congo, and Portuguese and Angola. In other cases, the, the countries, uh, the, the colonies that Europeans established encompassed rival groups. Uganda, for example, is the British bound together two or three kingdoms which have been at war for centuries. And the result of all this has created states which are not only artificial but inherently unstable from a political point of view. And so you can see the ramifications of this. It occurs every day, even today. This cripples an entire continent, and it's, you can't just throw it off because these borders persist to this day. You know, when we think about Europe, we can empathize with the Basque people or the Celtic people in Brittany or the Catalonian people in northeastern Spain. And what a Cinderella success story it is when they can have their own autonomy. Africa must just be rife with all of these little nations without states that still have that pride and you can't break that pride? Well, they're not really nations. They're states. And there's no kind of sense of national identity. So you can take a country like Nigeria, where the British amalgamated some 400 linguistic groups. So that's what I mean. Nations meaning ethnic groups that don't have a state. So what we have is these states that ignore the ethnic groups. Yes, like Nigeria. Um, and the result of that is is that because of the intense competition that goes on, to gain control of government. It sets up one group against another. And this sort of competition is very destabilizing and has led to any number of wars and conflicts. 
Journalist Martin Meredith from Oxford in England is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's written comprehensive biographies of Nelson Mandela and Robert Mugabe, plus books called Born in Africa and The Fate of Africa. His latest book is The Fortunes of Africa, published by Public Affairs Books. Martin, when I think of Africa, I think of dictators. There's dictators today, and there were dictators in colonial times. It's been, what, 50 years since the end of the you know, yes, colonial right. age. How are the dictators today different than the dictators of years past? Colonial regimes had no or very little means of democratic involvement. So they were, in effect, dictatorships, but some were more benign than others. The British and the French, on the whole, were more benign, and they encouraged internal development. And in a country like Ghana... The, the British and French encouraged more internal development yes, than, in, than in who? Af- the, other than the Belgians and the Portuguese, for yeah, The Belgians were notoriously cruel in their colonial ambitions. Well, it was the result of the way in which the Belgians took control of this vast wave of Africa. There was a, a devious and greedy European Belgian monarch called Leopold II, who basically kicked off what was called the scramble for Africa in the late 19th century and who decided that what he wanted was a chunk of African territory. Belgium didn't have an empire of its own, so he wanted to somehow get in on the sort of empire-building business, rather as the British and the French had done. And so he took control of a million square miles of the Congo Basin. And that is the origin of today's what's now called the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but which is just generally known as the Congo. Wasn't but the capital named Leopoldville? It was named Leopoldville. I bet it's not the name anymore. No, the name now <laughs> is Kinshasa. Okay. Uh, but yes, he named the capital up. Well, he had the capital named after him, and he declared himself King Sovereign of the Congo. But his aim, quite clearly, as a result of all the private correspondence, that since been made available was his aim was to make as much money as possible. Yeah. And ivory was his kind of first means and hope of making himself a fortune. And indeed, he did make himself several fortunes out of the ivory business. So was Ivory Coast part of that whole story? The Ivory Coast was named by basically the French. It's about a thousand miles away from the Congo. So, so the Congo had Leopoldville and the French had Ivory Coast and the British had Gold Coast. Yes. The coasts of West Africa were named after various aspects of trade. So um, the Gold Coast was known because it had gold mines, and that was one of the main sources. And the Ivory Coast, it had access to kind of elephant ivory. Nigeria, or parts of the Ni- what is now the Nigerian coast, were known as the Slave Coast, because that's where you could oh pick up goodness, slaves. Yeah. And countries like modern Liberia were known as the Grain Coast, because of the pepper that could be um, acquired there. Now, it's been roughly half a century since the end, quote, of colonial rule. What kind of a report card would you give the continent of Africa after half a century of independence? On the whole, there's been a substantial degree of failure on the part of African politicians and rulers to develop their countries in any kind of meaningful way. There are exceptions. You can take countries like Botswana, which was very poor at one stage at the time of independence, found diamond riches, but has used the management of the diamond industry there to good effect. To good Uh, effect. To good effect. That's probably the exception to the rule. It is. There are other countries which have done fairly well, but even countries which have been relatively stable. You can look at a country like Zambia, where there used to be the world's third largest copper producer. It was born with what's called a, a copper spoon in its mouth. It was so rich. And it basically kind of blew it all in nonsensical policies. And that was the sort of pattern of African governance for a period of about 30 to 40 years. You know, when I was in college, I read a book called The Origins of Human Misery. And uh, the premise of the book was, if you lived in a land without any resources, you would actually be potentially better off because you wouldn't have everybody competing for your resources. You could think Africa is famously rich in resources, but you could actually make a case that resources have been a curse for a lot of countries. Well, yes. I mean, that is a sort of popular view. My own view is is that the riches aren't actually a curse. It's the management of the riches where the failure has occurred. So the vast wealth that comes from the oil industry in Africa and so on, on the whole, has gone towards 
enriching various elite groups. Well, Nigeria is a great example of it that, is. isn't it? I, I mean, mean, I understand that the people have a disdain for their own oil industry because nothing trickles down. Yes, that, that's uh, entirely true. Indeed, uh, even the official Nigerian accounts admit that over a period of 40 years, the amount that was stolen, looted by Nigeria's rulers and officials and the ruling elite and so on, amounted to $260 billion over a 40-year period. That's the way that kind of Nigeria has been run more or less since independence as a result of the oil bonanza, and that's why it's thought to be so much of a curse. Yeah, it's an amazing story. We're talking with Martin Meredith and his book, The Fortunes of Africa, A 5,000-Year History of Wealth, Greed, and Endeavor, talks about this. And it's, this is a brick. This is over 700 pages, and it is, it's sort of an exhausting story, but it's a fascinating story to sink your teeth into. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Bill is calling in from New York. Bill, thanks for your call. Thank you for taking my call, Rick. And I was just simply wondering... um, when I think of Africa, um, I think of third world countries and nations. I think of, um, well, extreme poverty and images of starving children playing in filth with no running water and political corruption. And now we've got the Ebola crisis in, in Africa. And I was just simply wondering, you know, that, that's my image to a certain extent. And, you know, how can I get over that and uh, trying to consider... You know, actually taking a vacation in Africa to, uh, to, to really enjoy what, what they have to offer, you know, and, and things like that. Martin, this is such an interesting point. Uh, we think of the news headlines and we think all of Africa is a basket case, but a lot of people travel there and just love traveling there. What's your take on tourism in Africa? Oh, it's, it has wonderful opportunities, spectacular scenery, spectacular wildlife a huge variety of enjoyment, basically, in traveling there. But it's quite true um, that the images that your contributor has mentioned is part of the reality, uh, that there is kind of widespread poverty. Uh, And indeed, it affects most African countries, even those which are relatively rich from their own kind of resources, if only because the riches go to the ruling elites rather than kind of spread more widely. My sense is as a traveler, if you know what you're doing, you can travel without being reckless. Obviously, you wouldn't go to the tiny percent of Africa that has Ebola right now, but there's 95% of Africa that doesn't have Ebola. And if you travel with a Western budget, you can buy yourself into a comfortable hotel and still delve into the culture and learn from the people and have a rich experience. That's very true. Um, There are large parts of Africa which are not affected by violence or instability, where ordinary kind of travelers can actually have a a really enjoyable time and benefit from experiencing the cultures and traditions that um, are prevalent all the way. And you get that with countries like um, Kenya, for example, which have an extraordinary kind of variety of opportunities, really, for tourism. And the same applies to many other countries. It's a good place to travel in if only because kind of people are, on the whole, are courteous and friendly, sometimes a bit too friendly. But um, that's, in some ways, is better that way than any other way. And, I mean, I could reel off a list of African countries where you would have a really good experience. What are your top three countries would you recommend for people just to dream about visiting? Oh, I think Ethiopia is pretty high on the list. It's a sort of mountainous country. It's been a Christian kingdom, really, since about the 6th century. So it has a very long tradition. There are ancient monasteries that you can visit which are more than a thousand years ago. The scenery is kind of spectacular. The Ethiopians themselves are not particularly keen on foreigners, but they understand kind of the benefits that foreigners actually, particularly those with an interest in the local culture, uh, can bring. Um, Another one would be Kenya or Tanzania Mm -hmm. um, because of the essentially extraordinary places like Serengeti, the plains of Serengeti, which contain Mm. the largest herds of um, plains game in the world. Um, there are many other countries. South Africa is is always of interest, but it is, in fact, a modern industrial state. And so the sort of wilder aspects of South Africa are now, these days, slightly more difficult to find. There you go, Bill. Thanks for your call. Wow, uh, wow. thank you so much. I, I appreciate you've uh, really enlightened me in, uh, in a number of different ways. Thank you. Okay, bye now, Bill. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye.
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Meredith, his book, The Fortunes of Africa. Martin, uh, traditional colonialism is, is over, but in a sense, there's a new 20th century version of colonialism. You can think of, well, in the last century, how the Soviet Union invested so heavily, and uh, not compassionately, but smartly, and it's by its estimate, in Africa. And right now, China is investing hugely in Africa. Is there a 21st century kind of colonialism going on? There are some people who, who think that that's actually happening. Soviet interest was really a kind of byproduct of the Cold War. So when the Cold War came to an end, that phase of, if you like, foreign interest petered out. And it was indeed beneficial, if only because the Western governments decided that there wasn't any need any longer to prop up brutal dictatorships merely because they supported kind of Western interests. But it's certainly the case that in the 21st century, really almost dating from about 2000, that the Chinese have become deeply involved in Africa. There are now about a million Chinese immigrants who live in Africa. And the impact has, uh, has been mixed. China, in order to obtain access to Africa's vast mineral resources to feed its own industries, has invested heavily in contracts to obtain that. And, and in exchange, pledged to build roads and railways and ports and so on. So, so China sees Africa as their quarry in the future, and they need to build the infrastructure so they can get that material out. That's true. And, and they're, they're quite open about it. Mm-hmm. They want, as they say, to become the most important foreign player in Africa, and they're well on their way to doing that. There are disadvantages in, in that the Chinese way of doing business is rather like the way that Western corporations used to do business. This is that they always put into their contracts kind of 10 or 20% more than they needed, if only to ensure that there, were, there was money for kind of uh, back payments right. um, to the politicians who gave them the contracts in the first place. The Chinese, that practice um, has now been more or less not quite exterminated, but it is now very strongly disapproved. And Western corporations have given up those sort of habits. The Chinese, however, rely on that method of business to win contracts. And so they win all the contracts, if only because African politicians uh, see the benefits to them of obtaining kickbacks in exchange for doing deals with the Chinese. So it's a big challenge. It's a billion people. It's a lot of resources. And it's going to be of interest to the entire planet. Martin Meredith, thank you so much, and uh, best wishes with your continued study, and uh, congratulations on your book, The Fortunes of Africa, a 5,000-year history of wealth, greed, and endeavor. It's been a pleasure. With more countries than any other continent, Africa figures prominently in Sasha Martin's Global Table Adventures. Sasha's a listener who called us a couple years ago when she was in the middle of researching the foods enjoyed in every country on Earth and then serving them to her family, one country at a time. That was in alphabetical order. It'd be from Afghanistan all the way to Zimbabwe. Interest in her multinational kitchen has been huge, and she updates us next on the impact of her stovetop travels, what, what impact it's had on her family and on her community. Our number is 877-333-7425 at Travel with Rick Steves. Sasha Martin turned us on to the concept of eating globally, even if you don't have a chance to travel abroad. When we last spoke, Sasha Martin made a resolution to feed her family the cuisine of each country on Earth in alphabetical order from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. She wrote about this impressive undertaking in her blog, Global Table Adventure. Sasha joins us now to talk about what we call, or what she calls, stovetop travel. Sasha, thanks for being with us. So glad to be back with you, Rick. Stovetop travel. It's such a beautiful notion, and and you actually took your family on a trip to every country, all 195 countries, one week at a time, through your cooking. Tell us just basically how that came to be, and, and, and how does it work? Well, it's a simple story of a mother who was looking to offer her daughter an international perspective and a picky husband, broader perspective, um, living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, I'm somebody who was raised overseas, more than 12 countries before the age of 19. So I was kind of missing that sense of travel and exploring new things that I had as a youth. So I wanted to find a way to create that experience without leaving home. So this is something that anybody, regardless of their budget, can do, uh, as you've illustrated. You can go to 195 countries. It sounds like you had an agenda. You had a picky daughter and a a husband who might have uh, enjoyed a broader perspective. Uh, 195 weeks later, how did you do? 
Oh my gosh, so wonderful. My husband, when I met him, had never had fresh spinach. Had He had no idea what an eggplant was. And so it was a tremendous challenge. But I found with trying new countries week by week and staying positive, it was something he really opened up to. In fact, now he regularly requests sushi, and he's one of the first ones to comment on if he can tell that there's cinnamon in there. He's constantly talking about that. And then my daughter, she's five years old now, and she's eaten a meal from every country in the world. In fact, it was before her fifth birthday. And she is so fun. Every meal almost, she'll ask, what country is this, Mama? And sometimes I have to get really creative to think which country it is because we now have quite a melting pot on our dinner table. I absolutely love this. And you've reported on this in a, in a just a delightful way in your blog. And people can check out your blog at globaltableadventure.com. That's easy to remember, globaltableadventure.com. Now, Sasha, we've uh, exposed your family to the cuisine of 195 countries one week at a time. What kind of sweeping comparisons would you make about the cuisine that that you come away from after this four-year experience? Well, what I found was that many countries use much the same spicing, but in different ways. So what I really enjoyed was finding out that cinnamon, which I'm used to having in sweet dishes, like um, maybe a banana cake or something like that, that in many East African and Middle Eastern countries, that's a savory spice. So you'll have it in pilafs, and it's really wonderful with chicken. Yeah, like I, I feel like I'm cheating anytime I have cinnamon in the savory course, but actually that's okay. Oh, yeah. it's In fact, it's wonderful. I highly okay. recommend it. That's great. Uh, what are some other thoughts that you learned when you compare these regions? Well, you know, one of the things that really impressed me was learning about cultures I knew nothing about, because especially when I started the adventure, it was 2010, there wasn't a whole lot of information about countries around the world and what they ate. And so generally, you had a lot of the big hitter countries like China, France, that kind of thing, easy to find information on that. But to me, what I really enjoyed were, um, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, there was almost nothing out there and, and really feeling like I could contribute to their cultural identity for the broader world stage is, you know, let's put some of their recipes out there for people to try, not just at home, but maybe for school projects, things like that. Yeah, I was wondering about that because as I was going through your blog, you must have had some resources because you had to study. I mean, how would you know about, in Zimbabwe, you talk about candy cake with pink icing. I mean, how, how would you learn that? Oh, well, yeah, I became very good at research. I'm what you might call a front row kind of girl. I've always liked learning, and that's part of why I started the project. And so to me, it's really fun to do the research. In the beginning, I did a lot of library research, you know, finding reference books, but that didn't cut it after a while. And so I ended up doing some real digging, trying to find volunteers who were, you know, stationed in some of these countries Mm -hmm. who maybe could email with me and recommend certain dishes. Um, That dish I emailed extensively with a food blog about Zimbabwean cooking, and that was really great because they were able to confirm the texture on it. You know, sometimes I'm making these things, and I'm not sure if I'm doing it (laughs) quite right. (laughs) That'd be fun to invite a person from Zimbabwe over to try your your, uh, candy cake with pink icing, and they might... They might go, hey, you nailed it, or nice try, you know. Hey, Sasha, the uh, star of your whole uh, adventure really is your daughter, Ava, and she is so cute. And to think that she's just starting in school now, and she's already had this experience, and what an amazing, uh, broadening experience you, you offered her as a parent. When you think back on it, what did she love and what did she hate, and was it consistent? If she hated beets in Africa, might she like them in another culture? Well, you know, when she started off, she was seven months old. So those first few months, she was open, totally open. And I think all babies are that way. And as she got closer to the twos, some definite, normal, picky tendencies kind of came up. And so what I discovered was, so for example, she had no interest in trying sushi until we made it for Japan. And I had her help me put the asparagus and the avocado that she chose into the roll. And then we rolled it up and I sliced it and she popped that thing in her mouth so fast So I'd say definitely whenever there was hesitation on any particular ingredient, if she could help me make it, then we were in good shape. There's a lot of Southeast Asian soups where I could cover the table with herbs. And she had no interest in just eating a plain herb or if mom put it on her dish. But if she could grab and select what she wanted and put it in her bowl of soup, that was suddenly really fun to her. And so then she was interested And I would say that 
Generally, if there was an ingredient that she didn't care for, putting it in a different application generally fixed it. So mushrooms she wasn't that interested in, but if I put it in Lithuanian deviled eggs, there was a chance she might try it because I cut it up smaller. Ah, what, what a beautiful parenting trick or, or skill, I should say, to let your child broaden their palate by letting them cook it, and then they sort of take ownership and they're more positive and open to appreciating that. You know, as a parent with your daughter who's now eaten almost everything on the planet, you must have a different take on other families whose kids only eat grilled cheese sandwiches and uh, pepperoni pizza. Do you find that that's just kind of like copping out as a parent and, and any kid can be open to, to the adventure of eating? Or, or what is your feeling on that? Well, I think being a parent is so hard, and I commend anybody who's trying. You know, I think it is possible, and I think sometimes we just feel at a loss at where to begin. And the more I cooked the world, the more I came I know for a fact there is good food everywhere because I tested the theory. And as I went down this path, I got better and better at picking simple recipes that people could fit into their even weeknight routines. So, for example, I tried a Mongolian carrot salad and a Moroccan carrot salad. They're both shredded carrots but treated totally differently. And, you know, sometimes if you have a picky eater but you know they like carrots, maybe that's what you do is you just, you know, Mm. let them choose between one of those two countries and see where it takes you. How would a Moroccan and a Mongolian carrot salad be uh, completely different? Well, the Mongolian one is quite simple. It has some crushed garlic. It has, you know, vegetable oil, some raisins, a little bit of sugar, a little vinegar, and oil. And then the Moroccan carrot salad is a totally different flavor profile. You'll squeeze fresh orange juice on top of those carrots. And you'll also add, if you can find it, orange blossom water, which nowadays, if you go to an Indian market, you should be able to find it. Was it frustrating? You're in Tulsa. Um, I I would imagine Tulsa is not famous for having uh, the whole world in cuisine at your doorstep there. Uh, Could you get what you needed generally to serve food from 195 countries? Well, and that was part of my mission is, you know, as I was doing it, I thought, well, it's all fine, well, and good for my family to do it. But if I can help other people do it, I should, just because I feel like our children now are growing up in this global yeah. um, environment. And uh. so, yeah, so I gradually chose recipes that were more and more accessible. But Tulsa does have a really impressive assortment of international markets. What an inspiration. And, and to just raise the bar, wherever you live, you can uh, expose your kids to the world through cuisine. And one of the most touching things was that on your uh, final meal, Ava wanted to start over again. Oh, my gosh. She brought me to tears, that girl. That was so beautiful. (laughs) And then she said, thank you, world, for sharing your food. And to have a five-year-old daughter that appreciates that is so great. Sasha Martin's family spent all around the world without ever leaving their kitchen. And she's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves from the studios of KWGS Public Radio in her hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Sasha posts recipes and shares details of her international culinary experiments on her website. That's globaltableadventure.com. Sasha Martin also writes about her experiences in Life from Scratch, a memoir of food, family, and forgiveness. It's scheduled to be released in March. We're at 877-333-RICK. Natalie joins us on the line now from Winston-Salem in North Carolina. Natalie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for taking my call. Hello, Sasha. Hi, Natalie. You've inspired me. I am trying to write a cookbook myself. I have traveled extensively. I'm a travel agent, so I've been fortunate enough to travel about 60 different countries, and I'm trying to gather all the recipes that I have enjoyed over the times of travel. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is children's foods. Do you have some good recipes for children? Oh, absolutely. Uh, what, What age group are you thinking about? Oh, like four to ten. Oh, yeah. You know, a really fun thing you can do with children that age is they might enjoy making pizzas from around the world. I, oh, I bet, yeah. Yeah, I got to try different ones. Um, Saudi Arabia has a really neat one, and Turkey as well. Each one has a different, you know, you might not have the tomato sauce and that sort of thing on there, but you'll get different spices, really flavorful herbs Also, Montenegro has one where you crack an egg and you have raw pork on there and then you bake it and it makes this really nice, it's almost like a breakfast pizza. Hmm. That sounds great. Hey, Sasha, excuse me, don't you have a section in the blog about Ava's lunch? 
Oh, that's right. Thanks, Rick. Yeah, the latest thing I've been doing is sharing Ava's Around the World lunches. And that's a really new fun thing now that she's a kindergartner. But I actually have several readers who say they use the ideas for their work lunches even. So it spans all ages. And recently just did a a Nordic lunch where she had uh, an open face, kind of like a s'more abroad with smoked salmon on there and fruit and an Icelandic yogurt. How did you cleverly, from a teaching point of view, go beyond just food and splice in culture? Was that part of your program? Oh, absolutely. Um, The most simple thing you can do, which I recommend everybody to do, is to hang a world map in your dining room or wherever you eat your meals. I mentioned earlier my daughter constantly says, you know, what country are we eating tonight? So we are always referencing that map. And when you can do that, then you start to be able to bring in that conversation, those stories about those cultures. And you can say, oh, look, they're over here. You know, this country is near this other country. And and isn't it similar to what we ate last time? That sort of thing. Wow. And as your kids get older, you can even factor in contemporary events. And, you know, you heard about this happening over here. And there's that disease here. And there's that war here. And there's that special volcano here, and then you can factor it all in and have your child much more aware of the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a layering for sure. Natalie, thanks for your call. Yes, sir. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Sasha. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sasha Martin. We're talking about stovetop travel. Hey, Sasha, you've eaten now with your family in 195 countries, a four-year project or 195 weeks. Name a few of the country cuisines that you cooked up that really uh, pop out in your mind as really fun for the family. Oh, my goodness. Where to start? Really fun countries. Let me think here. Um, One of my fondest memories was the country of Lesotho, which is totally surrounded by South Africa. And the meal was very simple, but the drink is what stood out to me. It's a rooibos, which is a very popular tea now. I can get it at the coffee shop nowadays. It's a non-caffeinated tea that is very red, and you can brew it extremely strong, and it doesn't get bitter. What they like to do in the cities there is they'll brew it very strong by running it through an espresso machine. They have a special attachment for it. And then they'll add steamed milk to that. And so, you know, sometimes there's these really complicated recipes, but things like that brought a lot of joy to my daughter and I because we had this tea party. She could drink it. It was totally caffeine-free. She had a lot of fun with, she called it bubble tea. I think she was only two or three years old at the time, but she's like, bubbles? Can we have tea with bubbles? (laughs) And you also (laughs) talked about throwing a Central Asia tea party, didn't you? Tea in our house is pretty important. So, yeah, we had fun with that. Lots of dried fruit. They also enjoy melon there quite a bit. So, uh, you know, watermelon, whatever kind of melons you want. In West Africa, in Ghana, you can make, uh, speaking of watermelon, watermelon lemonade, which is inspired by a lot of the produce there. So drinks are a fun, easy, accessible way for people to dip into this. I would imagine your cute little daughter, Ava, loved the cocoa tea from St. Lucia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a big hit. And she doesn't get a lot of chocolate. So I had to be sure to give it to her early enough so that she wasn't up all night. (laughs) So that was hot cocoa with cinnamon and nutmeg. Sounds delightful. When you were uh, doing this adventure, did you have talk about innovative breakfasts? Because, you know, Americans are so into their, you know, two eggs, any style breakfast. And that's part of our culture. What sort of surprise treats did you discover in other countries' breakfasts? Well, depending on the culture, um, you might have like shakshuka in the Middle East is fantastic. And even within that, there's a lot of different ways to make it. But essentially, you would make this tomato and pepper-based saucy, brothy (laughs) mixture in your skillet, and then you would poach eggs on top of it. And Mm. it's wonderfully rich and spiced. And I tried it again for Yemen, and that it's more of a scrambled egg situation. But then, again, you can go over to Venezuela and you get cachapas. Hopefully I'm saying that right. That's one of the the weaknesses of not having somebody from Venezuela at my side when I'm cooking. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, that's uh, where you blend up and you make these corn cakes with cheese and you fry them. Really, really good. You know, Sasha, you must be thinking when when you're having all this fun, without even leaving Oklahoma, that a lot of us just needlessly restrict our adventures at the table by always doing the same thing and never putting fun stuff together that other countries do routinely. And and as you did this, you must have thought, wow, olives and cucumbers for breakfast. They do it in Turkey. Why well, can do it here? Uh, don't you look at cuisine now and you see a lot of people that are needlessly conformist and, and not very creative? I think I can really relate because I was one of those people, right? And And I think we just get busy and we get tired and we get in our ruts. I can't tell you how many people's spice collections I've seen that haven't been opened probably in 10 years except for those three spices they love. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. 
Yeah. And so I think sometimes we just need a little bit of a jolt to yeah. get creative again. And for me, this was it. And now I feel like I can help other people do it, too. Every time I talk to you, you are an inspiration. It is such a goldmine of cultural delights and fun that, that is accessible to everybody, absolutely everybody. And you've shared it so beautifully with your blog. Uh, again, if you want to learn more about Sasha Martin's uh, Global Adventures at the Table, check out globaltableadventure.com. Sasha, I was very touched when you wrapped up the whole 195-week experience with that last little message to the camera, and you got choked up. It was a very touching moment. Explain how the emotions came to you at the very end of this experience as you wrapped up what you were sharing with your all of your public. Well, I'll try not to get choked up again. <laughs> but um, I think I just put so much into it for those four years, almost four years. And it was, you know, it was our family's, it was like the spine of our family. Everything sort of was oriented around learning together. And I think maybe the biggest part of it was how it had grown, how people responded to it, how they loved it. They started doing it with their families. And it really moved me that it had been such a special part of people's lives. But then most importantly was looking at my own family and how it had changed in that time. As we talked about earlier, my husband was extremely picky. I had this little girl. I was sort of starting this whole family, and I didn't know, you know, where it was going, but I wanted it to have a positive impact and it just brought us together. It was a really wonderful experience. And I just kept closing my eyes thinking, if I open them, my daughter will be seven months old in my arms again. And that was really sort of hard but also special to think how much we'd been through those years. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that and inspiring all of us to open up at the table and share it with our families and become better friends with 195 different cultures. Sasha Martin, bon appetit. Thank you so much, Rick. Our family is happy. No wonder we're happy. Because we're cooking breakfast for the ones we love. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. We get technical help from Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. It's updated weekly in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.